In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to livable neighbourhoods, active travel and safer streets. I'm Ned Bolting. I'm Adam Tranter. And I'm Laura Laker. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about how we talk about road collisions. Now, the Active Travel Academy recently launched draft road collision reporting guidelines for consultation. What we hope will be a first draft of what best practice might look like for media discourse on road safety, crashes and how we talk about the people involved in those crashes. It's an incredibly uh, delicate subject, a hugely important subject. Um, That roughly outlines what it is, but it's also, I think, potentially ripe for misunderstanding. So, uh, Laura... What isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, and we've dis- we've discovered that it's ripe for misunderstanding. Apparently, uh, th- this week, um, yeah. So it's what we're not doing. Um, contrary to some headlines that we might have seen, is we're not calling for the term lacrylate to be made a hate crime. Um, we're not trying to gag the media or make offending somebody on the roads a punishable offence. Um, so yeah, it's much more, as you said, about trying to make the roads safer by improving the language around road collisions and road safety. So, Adam, this all kind of came about while I was a little bit out of action, um, commentating on the Tour de France for most of the month of September. And uh, sort of behind my back, you guys have been ferreting around and and coming up with this this project. And it strikes me as as a really logical consequence of something that periodically in this podcast and in other forums, I think a lot of us have been discussing for a very long time about um, our own frustrations with the way that language is used in the media. I mean, t- tell me tell me about how, how you decided to kind of put these thoughts down on paper and actually take it a little bit further. Yeah. So I'd been looking at the the media. I do it every day and I have to do it with my job. And, and, you know, more, more often than you would like, you come across articles that are just really kind of aren't well written they might have you know they might not 
um, be written as if there was even a driver present in a, in a car collision, for example. They might use the word uh, accident instead of collision or crash or something um, like that. So um, it's it's uh, it's been quite frustrating to to watch this, and I've seen lots of people. Um, also frustrated by it, and 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 um, you know, Chris Borman is one that I see comments on about media reporting um, regularly. I know through my work, you know, how important the media is in shaping the kind of discourse of uh, of active travel, um, and also just generally how we treat road users with respect of all walks of life, you know, whether they're driving a car on a bus or, or crossing a road or, or whatever. So it's been really important. And I, you know, I wanted to do something and sort of struggle to do anything. And then knowing Laura uh, was helpful because she sort of just took it and thought, well, we can, we can make this, make this happen. And um, Laura's done a lot of work with the police and, and other stakeholders to actually find out what is it that we need to start to advocate for. Um, we've learned loads. I've learned loads at least uh, on, you know, how horrific it can be for victims and families of victims as well. Something, you know, I came into this thinking it was more about language and linguistics, but actually, you know, just how, if you have a loved one that's been killed or seriously injured in a road collision, that's horrific enough, but actually to read it, you know, then read as an accident when you know that someone's actually, you know, potentially been in court for, for careless or dangerous driving as a criminal offense, um, kind of really great for these people quite rightly. So, so it's been a, it's been a kind of fascinating little journey to, to get to this stage. No, I'm sure I'm not very much like to kind of drill down into some of the detail of the language and, and which words work in which circumstances and which ones really don't and which ones you're kind of targeting. Um, but just generally speaking and moving away from our area of interest, Laura, I guess, being the representative of the media, if you the written the written press on our panel, I mean, do the media like do the newspapers like being told how to report things? <laughs> and what what precedent are there for guidelines being handed down to them and being accepted by them on, on certain areas? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess no one likes being told what to do, but th there's obviously professional standards for, um, for most industries and for journalism, most major news organizations will either have in-house guidelines for reporting. The BBC has its own guidelines, um, or it will be a member of, uh, um, an external kind of body on a voluntary basis, someone like Ipso or, um, Ofcom for, uh, TV broadcasting. But basically it sets out these journalistic principles, which include sort of non-discrimination, accuracy, um, impartiality, and also just accurate reporting on um, crime. And you can apply these to any area of reporting. And we've got specific areas that there are guidelines for and suicide's one that's often um, brought up because certain ways of reporting on suicide can impact people's health uh, in specific ways. So if you talk about how somebody killed themselves then it can, um, it can create sort of copycat or um, uh, yeah, it can, it can risk basically um, giving people, other people, influencing other people at potentially vulnerable points in their lives. And in a similar way, I guess, the way that we talk about road crashes influences how we think about our role on the roads as road users. So when we're driving about our responsibility to be safe around others and also the emotional impact on uh, families of victims or victims themselves, if you've been seriously injured on the roads, then um, and you see something written as an accident and, and you think, well, 
you know, maybe it's very rare, basically, that from police that we've spoken to that a road collision is an accident. Mostly it's um, it involves speeding or it involves drink driving or it involves some sort of carelessness or dangerous behavior. And so it's important not to presume as a journalist that, you know, it was an accident or that it was just um, something that holds up other drivers, for example. One thing that's come up that we didn't really think about when we were writing it, and which is why we've got a consultation, you know, to get these kind of new angles that we haven't got experience with or um, is um, is when you have sort of roads um, like updates for traffic, traffic updates. Um, and it'll say, oh, accident X, Y, Z on the road um, uh, and then investigations taking place. And apparently that means that someone's been seriously hurt or potentially killed. And, and the way that it's kind of reported so lightly, I mean, um, one thing that police have said to us is that they would like Accidents removed from those kind of immediate sort of updates on on collisions because you're driving along and you think oh the roads the roads blocked but you don't really think about oh you know I'm five minutes away from there maybe I should think about my driving you know um, yeah because it can happen at any moment really. I think the other thing that we we learned just to go back to one of your questions now on 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 whether the media like to be um, told in this case and and um, it is it's. Interesting, I think, because we, how charged the words cyclist is, um, we, we know this anyway, we talk about this quite a bit, but, um, you know, obviously the, 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 the guidelines are very clearly, if you read them very clearly about all road users, but, you know, naturally we talked about vulnerable road users and we talked about cyclists and we talked about pedestrians in that category and, um, something about the, the, the word cyclists really kind of allowed people, certain people, certain media titles to kind of light the flare and, and, and it really caught their, um, caught their attention, which, um, I think goes to show probably why, why we need guidelines because of the very nature of, um, just how charged certain phrases can, can be in kind of quite usual discourse just to kind of uh, describe a transport user. The other thing that was really, um, I hadn't really thought about, but I've been learning more about this recently is just how many of us are car drivers, myself included, and how normal driving is for everybody to, to do. And, uh, I've been learning about sentencing, which is a separate kind of, um, topic completely, but, a lot of people who have caused death by dangerous driving or careless driving um, will opt to, um, uh, if they the, the prosecution will opt for them to be um, tried at a magistrate's court, um, which has a certain limit on sentencing. The reason that is because if you go to a crown court and you have a jury, um, you potentially have 12 people sat there that could all be thinking, you know what, well, that could be me. Um, because, you know, everyone's gone five miles over the speed limit or, you know, looked at the phone when they're driving, you know, I don't think everyone has done that, but people kind of think it could be you. Um, so you get a lot more, um, anecdotally from speaking to people in the legal profession, you get a lot more kind of sympathetic, uh, responses. And I think the fact that we talked about road users and, and car drivers as, um, you know, potentially being absent from reporting for the consequences that they need to be kind of held account to, they, uh, that's not been taken well because a lot of people are like, well, it's an accident, you know, it's just an accident. Uh, and in many cases it's, it's not an accident. And that's the kind of uncomfortable truth for a nation of people who could all at any minute drive the car and kill another human being without, uh, without meaning to, um, through a lapse of concentration or judgment. 
just, just to sort of, I mean, I think this is all fascinating stuff and I definitely think we should discuss it further, but sorry to go on uh, about this. I'm just trying to figure out what the mechanism is for getting these guidelines adopted. So, I mean, who has to say, yes, that's a good idea. Uh, let's all fall into line in an ideal world. Is it uh, institution by institution, title by title, or is it something that a, uh, a, a um, I mean, how does it work? What, what, what would be your ideal outcome for, for launching this consultation and, and getting these guidelines adopted? Yeah. So ideally, well, we're hoping to get as many people respond to our consultation as possible. So we've already had feedback from um, policing, for example, who have pointed out different issues that we hadn't thought of and said, can you include this? Um, and are generally supportive. But we, we want to hear from as many kind of people who might be affected by um, by the guidelines as possible. And our hope is that if enough people from the road safety community and policing and uh, academia and from uh, legal ba- background support these guidelines, that it will become the industry standard. And then it will be the case that, well, this is how we should be talking about road safety as a as a society. And then we can ask um media outlets, you know, this is the way that we should be talking about it. And, and if you're not, then then why aren't you kind of thing? I mean, our hope is that, that people will adopt it voluntarily as they have for reporting on domestic violence. For, for example, that guidelines is, exist around that already. Suicide reporting guidelines have been widely adopted because of the uh, acknowledged impact of, of language on, on suicide. Um, so yeah, we we kind of hope that people will recognise the importance of these guidelines in terms of people's safety and, okay. and, and sign up. Yeah, and no, I get it. Yeah. So it's a kind of you know you, you've got to win the you've got to win the argument. You've got to get some sort of crit, to use a kind of cyclist term. You've got to get a bit of critical mass behind your judgment, and yeah. then it becomes yeah, yeah, and then exactly. it's a voluntary opt in process. And ultimately, I suppose you know if you if you haven't signed up to that, you'll become an outlier, and your reporting will be out of sync with everybody else's and. Yeah, I think if we've acknowledged um, the impact that language has, which which we are increasingly, and there's evidence to back up that you know the way we talk about road collisions impacts how people think about uh, other road users. There's um, there's a whole ang- there's a whole kind of issue of uh, dehumanising certain road users, and there's evidence if people use dehumanising road uh, language against cyclists, for example, cyclists are often the victim of these kinds of um, language. Then they're more likely to drive at them or throw something at them. So this actually impacts how safe we are on the roads and also extends to, um, you know, if it's just, you know, um, language around speeding that kind of makes light of speeding also makes us think, well, everyone does it. I I read a term on some local um, news site the other week, um, panic breaking, which I didn't realise was a thing. Um, It was in relation to some average speed cameras that were being introduced on a a main road somewhere that was a bit of a collision hotspot. And um, one one driver was quoted as saying he was worried that there there was going to be panic braking in order for people to, and that somehow people wouldn't be able to look at their speedos and drive at the same time, which is a bit worrying. And that, you know, you kind of report that and it becomes normalised. Um, but yeah, I mean, the hope is that that we all understand as as society and as a as a as a profession, as a journalistic profession, the impact. Um, and yeah, because it, it it is real, it, it is out there. I think the guidelines. Um, I think all media guidelines, pretty much in this country, probably. You know, I won't get into it, but like, I think rightly on balance um are voluntary like even off offcom and the um advertising standards agency and um things like that you know that they're they're 
codes that you know that people have to sign up to rather than being enforced upon. And I know media regulation is a very extensive um, topic, and this isn't about regulation. I think this is more about way more about just improving the the standard. And I think a lot of journalists, especially local journalists, um, I've spoken to a few near me who are uh, trainee reporters, you know, they're in the first year on the beat of, of, of doing the work. And, and this is new to them. Like this is stuff that they didn't know. And actually it's all very well sort of going on Twitter and saying, ah, you didn't, you know, absent driver or, or whatever, but actually having a place that's actually really well thought out and a methodical approach with lots of different stakeholders saying, you know, this is the right thing. One of the, one of the, um, uh, one of the responses we've had, you know, is from um, senior police officers who, who, you know, and one of the actual uh, negative responses we've had from people, you know, maybe saying, well, you don't need these guidelines or accident isn't a thing you should be focused on is, well, the police use road traffic accident, RTA. And actually what we've had from the police is, no, we don't. We haven't used that for years. We use RTC. No, it's very traffic collision. Mm. There's a reason we changed our language. Now you need to, now we need everyone to change the language. And conversely to that, we've had senior police officers get involved in the consultation, but we'd really like um, a, a conversation with local forces as well, and especially um, civilians and local forces, because the communications departments, I think, have a, have a really important part to play in this. A lot of the media reporting you see locally that says, you know, things like car hits child uh, and you have to go to paragraph nine to find out it was a driver that's been arrested at the scene um, actually comes from that kind of language being used in the police press releases. And it just gets copy and pasted from into local news reports on live feeds and things like that. So actually, this is not just about media using the right language. It's actually about certain police forces using the right language um, uh, as well. So hopefully getting all this impact uh, input will make more of an impact. And at the very least, it's a way of saying, look, you've done this. There are some guidelines here. And actually the National Union of Journalists are supportive and have been involved in this from the from the start. So hopefully that gives some credence to journalists to say, actually, as part of your professional development, why don't you have a look at this? Because um, it's something that's not well understood, but could be and should be. Yeah. And it's not about pointing fingers at anyone. It's just, um, yeah, it's just, you know, this is, this is how we do it kind of thing. Yeah. I've just got the sneaking suspicion that in, in newsrooms up and down the country and, um, you know, actually a lot of it happens remotely. So newsrooms don't really exist, but, um, I suspect the people who are reporting on, on, uh, road crashes up and down the country are starting out in their careers or perhaps are slightly marginal mm, to the yeah. bigger stories or it's basically what I'm trying to say is it's not a priority, is it? It's, um, it's, it's yeah. something that it's something that you can uh, quickly, I'll just toss something off and stick it up online there. And, uh, I, I, I suspect one of our biggest battles here would be to get anybody to engage in a thought process at all about it because it just doesn't seem to be an important issue. I think, um, journalists want to do the right thing. I think people want to get into journalism some bit to make an, an impact. I mean, I, I hope that, you know, making an impact, serving your community is, is part of the reason why a lot of people get into journalism. It's certainly not for the big bucks. Um, it's <laughs> not for, um, <laughs> it's not for love. Um, I think journalists are maybe underneath politicians in terms of how much we're trusted in society. So, you know, you'd hope that there's a, there's a desire to kind of yeah. do the right thing and, and journalists are, um, you know, time press. It's not an easy job. It's being, uh, underfunded, 
and and it's kind of in under threat and COVID's only made it worse, more acute. So yeah, it's just it's to try and help gen this out basically. You know, this is how to do the right thing in in this field. But it is it is a, a significant part of of local reporting because crashes happen um, more than we think. Maybe we should have a, a, a look then. I mean, we've already started to a certain extent, but a little bit more, some of the detail of the language and how it can be improved. I, I suppose the most common bit of reporting um, is, I mean, the most the most common thing that sort of I, I, I flag up from time to time. And I remember taking issue with a local radio station in Harrogate shortly after the world, the UCI World Road Race Championships this time last year, um, who reported on a, um, a road crash involving a cyclist. It's actually quite serious, I think. And they were one of many, many people, almost on a daily basis, who reported um, a cyclist being hit by a car. And that's that's kind of like point number one, isn't it? That's that seems to be the most common um the the most common bit of reporting or, or kind of a, what would you call it? A, a an idiom that needs to be uh, examined and mm. perhaps questioned. Yeah, it's a trick. That's a that's a tricky one actually. And it's one that I struggled with while writing the guidelines that um you're physically hit by a car, but there's a driver behind the wheel of the car. And it was, and it's quite hard to get that nuance in a news report, especially in the moments after a collision, after you find out about a collision as a reporter and you need to get the information out there and you need to do it accurately and without, you know, without inadvertently um, blaming someone when you don't know the facts. And it, that is a very tricky one, but, but, you know, when it comes to the, um, you know, car, there was, I saw one, um, in my research, car, high, high powered car spins out of control on a wet road, a driver has lucky escape kind of thing. And you just think, well, it's, it's kind of sounds like they were driving a powerful car, not to the road conditions and spun out. And, and so I think using car in that circumstance is like, you know, you need to say driver spun out of control, but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm. I guess I guess I'm still falling into that trap as as well. Of, but it's not the car. Basically, it's not the car that that has the crash. It's a driver spins out of control, or a driver mounts the pavement, or um, driver crashes into the wall. It's yeah. There has to be a an actor in in the in yeah in there. If there's a human behind the wheel, this um this sounds quite the thing. I was on local radio talking about this, and and when you're trying to explain it, um it you know, it sounds both like something you shouldn't really worry about, but also something that when you start to talk about it, like sounds quite extremely perverse that we got to this. And, and, and I was saying, you know, well, you know, the car didn't do it itself, did it? And they, you know, they, they acknowledged um, that in the kind of discussion that we, we had. And if we, if we flipped it around, um, I guess it all like the the starting point of this is that we don't take road collision, road crime seriously in this country and, and a lot of countries. We just don't take it seriously. So when you when you use the same language to describe crime that we do take seriously to to demonstrate how clearly the way we're using language is wrong, it sounds quite mad. So if you said um, uh, man uh, man stabbed by knife. Um, and, and, and like that, that. And, and actually, if you went one step further and start to talk about, you know, the man wasn't wearing like in, in road collisions, the man wasn't wearing a helmet or wasn't wearing a high-vis jacket, you know, the man who was stabbed, unfortunately, wasn't wearing a stab-proof vest at the time. 
Um, it obviously sounds quite, uh, quite, quite ludicrous, but, um, and it, and it is in many sense, I'm, you know, I'm being ludicrous to, 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 to make the point, but we need to look at the, um, just the subconscious use of, um, of language we saw, cause it goes one step further. Like Chris Borman retweeted something the other day where the headline is woman in her thirties still fighting for her life after bike cra- crash. Um, and you have to get to paragraph uh, nine, uh, I think to, to read that the cyclist was knocked off a bike by a car. A 23 year old woman was arrested on suspicion of causing a serious injury by dangerous driving and failing to stop. Um, and that doesn't get in the headlines. So the, those things are obviously different topics, but they all, it starts with the basic thing of not acknowledging there's a driver, uh, and it, it goes kind of two or three steps further. And then we just become totally numb to all of this stuff. And we start to see it as, uh, inevitable. Very, it's very interesting. It's very interesting in, actually to hear Laura kind of say, mm, perhaps it is quite a difficult one that, um, because I'd always, I'd always, I, I have never really stopped and thought about it perhaps in, in enough detail, but, um, perhaps it is a little bit more nuanced than I imagine. And, and maybe the nuance is a facet of exactly what you were just saying, actually, Adam, this, um, this notion that when you're talking about the jury, um, this notion that deep down, almost subconsciously, pretty much all of us drive as adults. All of us might feel that we are only one momentary lapse away from doing someone serious damage in the car. Uh, and, um, and that, that, so that's, that is kind of prefiguring our thoughts somehow and, and the way we think about this. And, and, that, and that's why, that's where the knife analogy doesn't work really, does it? Because we're not, none of us are, you know, a hair's breadth away from doing someone damage with a knife. Although knowing my yeah, bad luck I, recently, I, <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out. I've got to chop some vegetables for a soup soon. But um, <laughs> um, but but so that that I think I think you're right. I think it goes to the heart of. I think you're both right in a funny way. Like it goes to the heart of our complicated thinking about our relationship with cars. In the same way that in the same way that you know we have this we have this invisibility thing about private property being dumped on the pavement. We just don't see it in those terms because it's so much part of our are the accepted lives we lead. And so maybe that is, yeah, maybe that's the problem. We ha- yeah. It, yeah. It's, it, it is quite complicated. And when you're, when you're writing a news, we, you know, we recognize that when you're writing a news report that, that there's not a lot of time to be thinking about this. And um, yeah. And that's why we're, we want to get as much input from as many people as possible in order to make this kind of clear and, um, and easy to follow. And, and having that, we've got sort of three levels of detail. We've got the initial, the kind of main four points that we wanted to make as our guidelines. And then we've got sub clauses about, you know, um, in more detail, basically about what should and shouldn't be included in, in discussion about road safety. And, um, we had an interesting, um, response from, um, there's, uh, something called the roads policing academic network and the director of that academic network, who's a senior lecturer in criminology, Dr. Helen Wells said something quite interesting about our language. She said, there's also something too natural and unpreventable about the term accident. And we use it, for example, as children to explain events where there should not be accountability and a line should be drawn. She said, accidents happen. So it might be suggested there's no point trying to prevent them. Um, she talks about the language used in our context, i.e. policing, is a strange contrast to, to that, or roads, I should say, to that used in the rest of the world, where accountability is everything and nothing is supposed to just happen without some sort of inquiry to attribute blame. 
Um, she says part of the explanation for that contradiction is that we're all drivers and may find ourselves on the receiving end of blame. But when we're exposed to the failings of others, we want them to be made to pay. So the driver mentality, she said, is a fascinating and scary place full of hypocrisy. There's a collective denial about the fact that people die at the hands of others on the road. And perhaps we would not be so keen on driving if we allowed ourselves to reflect on the reality of what it can inflict on others. And I think that was the super powerful point that she made. Com- completely. And chimes in with, I think, exactly what we were just saying. I mean, m- maybe, the, maybe the happy medium would be to consider um, very strongly never leaving an article or report alone until you have made it clear that, let's say, let's say in the classic case of a cyclist is knocked off by the driver of a car, right? A classic, I don't know, someone turns left and takes out a cyclist. Um, that would be an ordinary kind of accident crash. Um, maybe you should never leave a report alone until you have made it clear that two human beings were involved. So even yeah. if you even yeah. if you do say a, a cyclist was um, hit by a car, your next sentence should be the car was being driven by a yeah. 40 year old male or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, something like that should be there so that we know that two humans w- were involved in that incident and, and you should never, leave, yeah. you should never leave it at just a car without um, sort of uh, going a little bit beyond that. And maybe that would be a, a reasonable sort of solution to find. Mm. Agree. And I think there's, yeah. um, there's, there's, there's potentially, I mean, there's two, two steps to this, I think. I think one is about improving the quality of, you know, the, the standard of reporting generally, uh, which talk about, and I think two, and we need to, you know, I think this is why having a consultation is really important because you get people's feedback, but clearly there are people out there, you know, which I think we all want this, but especially the police, for example, you know, taking a very keen interest in actually how they can reduce, you know, deaths and on the road and and road collisions. So they're looking at it probably not only from a kind of, um, you know, statutory sense, but also from a kind of, um, you know, an advocacy sense. And, and I was thinking about what happened during the daily briefings during COVID, you know, at the start of every daily briefing, we had, we had a, a government minister say very solemnly, um, that, you know, so, so many people have died today and so many people have been infected with this terrible disease. And, and actually, if you wanted to have a, a a similar effect in the seriousness of road collisions, you would actually start to count how many people die on our roads or even in the, the same town or city uh, or, you know, in that place. Like uh, the London Evening Standard, to their credit, did do this with cyclists. You know, they were saying this is the eighth cyclist killed on London's roads so far this year um, and, and and so on. But for, for the run of the mill, collisions if you like um we don't we don't plot any of them together we don't we don't sort of say well you know five people died on britain's roads today that's the news um because that doesn't make it that context is so important and that's what studies have found into into road collisions that you know it needs to be about not just individual cases we put the we put the dots together by understanding in reporting that actually this you know this street is dangerous or so many people are killed a day or a week or a month and that it's not these aren't isolated incidents ultimately there is a problem with the roads and there's a and it's a problem it's not just about deaths it's about serious injuries and 
you know, there's, there's 1,700, around 1,700 deaths a year on Britain's road, but there's about 20,000 serious injuries. And these are going to be things that are, you know, plague people for the rest of their lives. It's going to be, you know, pain, um, you know, potentially loss of a limb. It's, you know, it's really serious stuff. So it's, yeah, and it's a lot more common than I think we realize. And, and, um, and yeah, and like you said, Ned, it's about, it's ultimately about humans and it's about humans, you know, doing things wrong. It's about crime. It's about, um, and it's about the human impact of, of road collisions. And it's about kind of understanding that as a society and not taking it, uh, too, not taking it lightly. For the, um, for the benefit of our, um, listeners, it's occurred to me that this is a, uh, a podcast. Um, should we, uh, should we read the, the four guidelines are very short, aren't they? The, the, the first phase, the taster. Absolutely. Yeah. Four main categories aligned with journalistic values. Number one being impartiality. Publishers must not use the term accident when describing road collisions. Collision or crash are more accurate, especially when the facts of the incident are not known. Number two, discrimination. Publishers must avoid using negative generalizations of road users and must not use dehumanizing language or that which may incite violence or hatred against a road user in comment or news coverage. Number three, accuracy. Coverage of perceived risks on the roads should be above all accurate, based in fact and context. Publishers should make mention of human actors in a collision, what we were just talking about, and avoid reference to personal protective equipment such as high-vis jackets and helmets, except when demonstrably relevant. And number four, reporting on crime. Publishers must avoid portraying dangerous or criminal behaviour on the roads, such as speeding as acceptable, or those caught breaking the law as victims. Yeah, so the, the high-vis thing, um, that that's an old chestnut, isn't it? That gets mentioned in quite often in reports and often re- remarkably out of context where you scratch your head and go, what, of what possible relevance is that? Yeah. And there is, there is kind of evidence around the use of um, uh, language around what someone might have been wearing. There was a study from the US about a year ago, um, from November to October, November 2019, um, that found that it was about pedestrian collisions or cycling collisions. And it found that if, um, if they, it, they'd written these two news reports and had basically changed the language to either focus on a pedestrian or a driver. Um, and if they said stuff like, you know, the pedestrian was wearing dark clothing at night, then it tended to increase the blaming of the pedestrian. So that, that's why it's important um, that it does actually influence people's perception of, of who is at fault. So Societally, yeah. we have this, the same thing and it probably, you know, part of it comes from the media and part of it comes from our association with riding a bike being, weird or dangerous in this country but um just for re- uh, for listeners benefit Ned, I, we, we were having a little wind up on on um on whatsapp when you've you've broken your arm if people didn't know from uh from riding your bike and you know i first thing i said was oh were you wearing a helmet um because that's that seems to be what what what, what happens when you have you know accidents accidents collisions what, 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 what do i call a self-inflicted can i call a self-inflicted i think it's a uh, thing an I think, accident i think it's an embarrassment unforced error embarrassment that's it i don't want to dwell on this but just for yeah, full disclosure full, dis- full disclosure um uh, laura you were talking yeah. we were talking about we're all car drivers and we're all humans and we all make mistakes um i'm a 
bike rider and I made a, I made a mistake, you know? So, um, but, but my main mistake was I was riding at night and I, I did have a light on the front, but it wasn't good enough. It was just a, one of those little lights that flash and, uh, it didn't actually illuminate my path. And because I'm an urbanite, oh, yeah. I'm not really used to riding in the country where there are no lights apart from the, 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 it's surprising if you're not the used mil- to it, the yeah. Milky Way, um, which wasn't really up to the job. And, uh, <laughs> what I thought was a bridge over an irrigation ditch turned out to be, well, the bridge was there, but the left-hand side of it wasn't the bridge. It was the ditch. And I chose the left-hand side. Oh, no. So I went flying through midair and I dropped about eight foot into a, into a ditch. And I came out with sort of oh, nice. a very badly broken arm and pond weed sticking out of my hair and all that sort of thing. Oh, anyway, but, 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 were you, how did you get back? How, how far from home a whole, were you? That is a you whole were... podcast in itself, Laura. Um, so I won't, oh, I won't bother with that. But suffice to say, I made a mistake and I was actually talking, we were talking about equipment, high vis and helmet and all that sort of thing. I wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, I could have actually hurt my head and I got away with it. Um, a little bit. So that was a bit of a lesson to me because I was probably going fast enough to merit wearing a helmet, certainly, especially if you're planning to ride across a ditch. Um, And also I should definitely have had proper lights. So, you know, I hold my hand up actually and say, I got that wrong. And I'm very glad it was only me involved. We have, um, uh, well, I'm glad we're, 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 we're glad you're all right, Ned. Was worth worth saying. I never saying. said I was all right. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from severe shoulder pain we're, and an operation, we were worried about the um, the future of the podcast. Um, so uh, no, we're we're, we're, we're chuffed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we um, we we have this. Um, don't want to kind of diverge too much, but we have this thing also um, with, and it's actually they're on our list of people we've engaged with um, with the Department for Transport because. The Department for Transport um, actually, you know, still use uh, the word accident uh, in places. And actually the highway code still stipulates that you should wear um, all the protective gear under the sun every time you ride a bicycle um, everywhere. And I think, you know, most of the DFT now acknowledges that that's not, you know, aged particularly well. And that we're, you know, if we want to get people riding bikes in this country, we need to normalize it. And, and actually, you know, the evidence is flawed at best. But um, that that uh, makes it harder to have a discussion on this because, you know, you could quite rightly say, well, look at the highway code. If the highway code says you should wear a helmet and high vis, and I'm writing a news article about you and you've not worn helmet or high vis. I think that's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. I think think it's it's something that that's why this is a multi-agency kind of approach because Mm. everybody needs to, to have their, have their say and it's affected, um, by this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did. We did actually have someone from National Roads Policing come back and say um, they're going to talk to everyone in National Roads Policing in case there are any corners of of the organisation that still use the word accident. So um, yeah, it's just a case of going through and um, and uh, going through websites and documents and stuff and just uh, just changing that language sometimes. Number two, which you mentioned, Ed, on discrimination. Um, that's you know I think uh, something we should discuss uh, in the latter stages of our. Uh, of our podcast. Um, I, and this is what was ultimately led to, um, I wouldn't say a barrage cause it was two articles, but, um, you know, a suite of, uh, uh, negative media coverage, I would say that misrepresent what the media guidelines are about. And, um, so much so that the word 
cyclist, uh, you know, uh, created such a red flag um, for for some journalists that they they created pieces that were solely based on this 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 guideline, effectively, that we shouldn't use negative generalizations of road users. And that not, that's not just like rollouts, um, but it's also things like zombie pedestrians uh, and other other terms that the media can use to, um, to, to gain effect and put across um, a negative perception, which A, I think is bad for reporting, but B, as Laura said, there's been studies in, the, in Australia that have shown that actually this kind of reporting can actually lead to people throwing stuff or driving at people on bikes um, in, in this case. So it's quite a, a serious thing, but, but uh, you know, effectively we should state for the avoidance of doubt that, you know, advocating for media to not generalize negatively towards different road user groups is quite different to somehow passing a law that would make <laughs> calling like rollouts a hate crime which I would think would need an yeah, act of parliament. Yeah, we're not really in that position, are uh, we? To, we to, really to do, do that. that, you know, it's it's hard enough to get people to, you know, adopt the guidelines, let alone um, get an act of parliament across. Um, uh, I thought you so, were going to say to follow the law and the roads anyway. Well, it kind of is sometimes. Yeah. So, so, uh, so I think I think um, that's been frustrating, hasn't it, Laura? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I guess I guess we could have foreseen it because it is a it is a revenue stream effectively for some parts of the media to, doing this kind of thing, um, and uh, and it's a, it gets clicks and it gets people excited and and um, and that has that has contributed to um, a, a rather hostile environment on the road. I would say I remember there was um, Channel Five did that program, um, cyclists scourge of the road, scourge of the streets. Scared of the streets. It was last year, wasn't it? It was around this time last year, like autumn last year. And I remember speaking to Mark Hodson of the West Midlands Police, and apparently they'd um, they'd asked him to take to take them somewhere. The production crew take them somewhere. They did. People didn't like cyclists, uh, but because of the work that the police had done in the West Midlands, they reckoned they couldn't find anywhere. They took they took them to a trucker's truck stop, like a trucker's cafe. And even there, people were like, "Yeah, just you know, live and let live." But it was all it was all about the messaging, really, because the police have been so good and proactive there about messaging because they knew that Birmingham they're trying to uh, build these new cycle lanes and get more people on bikes and it was part of this whole transport plan and they kind of foresaw this uh, bike lash coming and, and tried to fend it off basically with driver education which they did on a, on a sort of uh, concerted and long-term uh, basis you know all power to them because it, it worked and there was apparently very limited animosity after that drivers you know the crashes went down and um and drivers you know knew how to behave around cyclists and kind of didn't begrudge that so apparently oh, they're an amazing police force aren't they i've had some i've had yeah. some dealings with those guys they're really kind of fantastic yeah they're, yeah. Really, they're really exemplary very positive yeah, yeah doing some good work I, I was thinking about this this morning in particular you know i'm sure you come on to talk about it you you have collectively these guidelines have had a little bit of a as you say, in certain quarters, a negative um, response, um, which you can tell us about if you wish. <laughs> but I was, I was just thinking over a cup of tea this morning in anticipation of recording this podcast. How, and I, I got to be careful how I say this, but because um, I, I don't want it to sound sort of wrong-headed or, or disrespectful of people far more um, deserving of attention than I. So I checked my privilege and realised very quickly for the umpteenth time every day that I'm a white middle class male and um, am 
you know, by, by lottery of birth on top of the pile in almost every regard and have no cause um, in most of my life uh, ever to sort of uh, consider myself a minority or in any way discriminated against, save for this one little corner of my life that happens to be, <laughs> that, that happens to be um, quite important to me um, and part of my everyday lived experience. Um, and that little bit, albeit something I can walk away from, something that is not going to change my life chances or really hamper my, my progress through this world, but this important little part of my life, I do feel like um, I have a glimpse or a taste or a scintilla of understanding of what it might be like to be part of a genuinely discriminated minority, um, because I consider that to be where we're at a bit because um, mm. listening to and reading, you know, you forwarded me the, the article that the Daily Mail had written about the initiative. And um, I, I imagine that it's just tiring, isn't it? It's, um, you say the same thing. You say it cogently, eminently reasonably, very accurately. And, and you get it and you get it from certain quarters. You get it thrown back in your face because that's the easy thing yeah. to do. And you get it thrown back in your yeah. face by the majority of the country for whom this is mm. not relevant. None of this debate, it's yeah. not even, it doesn't feel important enough for them to actually grapple with it. They'd rather just come, mm. come away with the cheapest response. And I think that is probably, that's probably exactly the feeling that, that is shared times a thousands for people who are genuinely discriminated yeah. in this country. Yeah, yeah. And th yeah, there's no other area of my life, um, that's for sure, where people would um, drive a vehicle at me or yell at me or I've had things thrown at me because I wouldn't get out of someone's way or, um, and it, it yeah, and it's just, it's just something that, does, I mean, as a woman, like um, if I ever have to, yeah, having to deal with, um, uh, I don't know, sometimes you get a sense that you're treated differently as a woman, of course. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so marked when you're on a bike and it really is just, it's just language. It's just the way that we portray um, cycling in this country. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's really, it's really very toxic, but I think, um, I remember the, there was the times journalist who was hit by a lorry driver a few years ago. And then the times launched a campaign, um, cities, safer cities, um, campaign. It was maybe a de roughly a decade ago. And Claire Burgess was the journalist who used to write a lot about this. And I think it brought it home to, to that newspaper. And, um, they now have the likes of, um, Rod Little writing for them, joking about stringing piano wire across, um, cycle ways um because he doesn't like people cycling apparently um but you know if that had been after this collision had happened and he'd he'd known this journalist who was a young woman um then you know maybe he would have felt differently but um yeah i think i think most of us are uh, lucky enough not to be uh, kind of touched by these incidences but victoria lebrec who now works for road peace she wrote a blog on our web on the road collisions reporting guidelines website um which is www.rc-rg.com um and um then yeah she talks about her experience um having um, lost a leg in collision with a lorry while she, she was cycling a few years ago. And she talks about the reporting of her crash um, and she had to have her leg amputated after this crash and, um, and, and what, and what impact that has. And she now works with families of the victims of road collisions with road peace and kind of understands the impact of, of, of reporting. But yeah, I think, I don't know, hopefully it will, it will sort of try and bring home the, 
that it is, it is very serious. And, um, you know, we've all got a right to go about in safety and uh, without harassment, haven't we? Yeah, I think it's it, it really did. You know, uh, Ned, what you put is what you said is just what I, what I wanted to say and is really articulately um, put in yeah. that, that we, right. um, you know, we've all experience this and 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 but in the grand scheme of things you know it, it's something that um potentially you know we could walk away from and and you know uh, you know have that choice whereas other forms of discrimination you can't but the thing for me is that's frustrating about even that is that you we assume that everybody is there for cycling as part of a choice and part of a hobby, if you like. And I think that links into the notion of being a, you know, a lycra lout is almost self-identification term. You chose this life. You, you want to do this, you know, your fair game. And actually it stops us having a conversation in this country about the fact that cycling could genuinely revolutionize people's, some people's life chances um, in terms of uh, employment, in terms of health, in terms of fitness, in terms of um, pollution and all of these things. And and actually, you know, just take pollution as one of these things. If you live on a main road and you can't ride your bike because you live on a um, live on a main road, then your, you know, your life chances are affected by that. And actually it's people largely who are better off than you who drive down your road you know use your use your your main road where you live as you know like live on the tollgarth roundabout or something like that um and and that's affecting your life choices but actually decision makers and your people driving never thinking about it like like that at all so it does have a it does it does have an element of seriousness to it um it's just a shame it's characterized as yeah sometimes characterized by by some media and some people as as um you know, being, uh, being this kind of snowflake culture that we, you know, in the, in modern day worlds and politics, the woke culture, I don't even know what it really means. Like, uh, but somehow I have a feeling that when people were writing about like outs becoming a hate crime, we were woke, you know, I think that's probably what we were. I don't really know, but like, I, I think like in t- today's modern world of, of divisive polarism and politics and, and, uh, identity culture, class wars, things like that, then that's probably what we were. And and that's just how wrong that is. It's just totally not the case. Yeah, I think people on the lowest incomes or the people with poorest transport links um, potentially have the most to gain from safe cycling infrastructure and for getting, you know, being able to get on their bikes safely. And so, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a mischaracterization, but it's just... Um, yeah, hmm. yeah, 100%. So I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember writing a column a, a years ago, about four or five years ago for a cycling magazine. And I'd just come back from the commentating on the tour of Dubai, the Dubai tour. And my column was all about what an absolute disgrace um, Dubai is. <laughs> what an affront to nature Dubai is as a, as a, as a, pro, as a project. <laughs> but most specifically, you know, um, most specifically the way it has given itself over to the motor car um, in every single aspect. And it's such a shame because they were designing a city from scratch and had endless, boundless um, budgets to build proper infrastructure. And um, all the construction workers who, you know, live out of town in the labour camps in terrible conditions um, come into town every day, lots of them by bike. 
um, to work on the work yeah. on the building site. Well, they can't afford to any other way of getting in other than overcrowded yeah. buses, and why not? It's a perfect, except for the fact that on most of the big dual carriageways in Dubai, it was illegal to ride your bike. You know, so oh I gosh. kind of I, I I ranted about that. But anyway, they um, I think ultimately the uh, the, the uh, cycling magazine lawyers had a look, good look at it and redacted half of my column because Dubai are quite oh litigious. <laughs> Oh, well. well oh, my gosh. You would have had to do Ned, Ned Bolting versus Dubai. <laughs> That'd be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, that's not the first magazine or newspaper column you've written where um, had a little bit of controversy because you, uh, if I remember correctly, you resigned from the Metro as well over, over uh, yeah, a that was, cycling. I, I, I had a column with Metro, for a cycling column for a number of years. And I just, I came back from a Tour de France and within about three weeks, they'd put up some like you were saying, Laura, presumably quite targeted clickbait on their um, online version, their online sister sort of title. And it was, it was, I can't actually remember what it was, but it was classic misrepresentation of a cycling crash and a cyclist's behaviour. It was an incident just the other day, wasn't it, with the South London Press that was absolutely, it was very, very similar. It was an extraordinary kind of misappropriation and it was dreadfully worded. Mm. And I'd, and it was, it was kind of like the third or fourth time they'd done that. And I thought, I just thought I'm going, uh, that's, I can't be, I can't have my name to it any longer. So I um, unilaterally resigned from my column, which um, was a shame because I really liked the people I worked with. And they sent me um, some emails and messages saying we're, we're as embarrassed as you are by um, the way our newspaper tries to monetize this controversy. But ultimately, I don't know if I achieved anything other than ridding myself of an income stream. Well, well, good think, on you for standing, yeah. for standing up for what you believe in. True. It's often not the journalists themselves. It's often um, just the, 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 either the publisher's agenda or the newspaper's agenda. Um, I think, I think, you're, right. I think you're right. It's the algorithm. Yeah, mm. that's a problem, yeah. isn't it? That we, you know, another conversation altogether, but um, definitely the algorithm um, lends itself. Uh, Carlton Reed wrote an article the other day about some social media from a publisher and identified that, you know, they did a, a post on one of their Facebook pages saying, you know, sent is national look after your nan day or something like leave a comment for what you'd say to your nan. I mean, other than that sort of an awful social media post, um, it got one like and zero comments. And then they also ran with, um, should cyclists pay road tax like everybody else, uh, which, which is, you know, is totally bonkers and leading. Road tax um, doesn't exist one. Yeah, yeah. Road tax doesn't exist one. To like everyone else, what like electric car drivers or I don't know horse pilots, pedestrians, pedestrians <laughs> horse pilots. I need a horse pilots. <laughs> There you oh, go. I'm words. just going to go pilot my horse. Um, horse riders. Um, and uh, yeah, it's... Um, uh, it, it got like 500 likes, 500 comments, mm. 100 shares. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, that's what we're we're playing up against. We 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 yeah. reward in this an, pluralism. An yeah, and in era of declining um, revenues, advertising revenues and uh, sales for newspapers, we're kind of we're kind of painting ourselves into a corner. I think um, with the British media system, yeah, yeah, highly underfunded. Um, just to. I think we should we should um, probably leave it there. But I just did want to end on a quote because because I'm feeling philosophical. It's not my quote, um, but uh, just from what you said, Ned, about Dubai, it just made me made me think of something. And I've just googled it so I could get the exact quote. But um, uh, it's from Gustavo Petro, who was the mayor of Bogota, 
Um, and he said that a developed country is not a place where the poor have cars, it's where the rich use public transportation. Um, and I thought that was nice. Beautiful. And also, That's a a it's a really good one. good one. And it reminds me of our very some of our very first uh, podcast episodes that we started recording at the beginning of lockdown, where we, we spoke about Bogota and uh, the progress they were made. Do you remember? It's one of those sort yeah. of model yeah. cities. Seems like a lifetime right. ago, doesn't it? So, well, a lovely way to end. Um, all right. Well, good luck with the consultation. Laura, just remind people how they can contribute if they want to. So if you go to www.rc-rg.com. That's it. All right. Uh, we could put the, presumably put those on the show notes or something clever like that, can't you, as well, if you're yep. that way inclined. All right. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you, Adam. Uh, we shall... Uh, I'm sure we'll meet again before too long. In the meantime, though, you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Let us know what you think. We are at Pod. Get it right. We are at Pod Streets Ahead. If you think you know people who like this podcast, then please do share it with them because it really helps. Finally, wherever you're listening, please do rate and review the podcast uh, because that means that more people find us. Until next time, thanks for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.